From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is episode 10 of the Share Profits radio show for Wednesday, the 18th of September, 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifred. It is indeed Tom Winifred coming to you with the 10th edition of Share Profits Radio uh, from Wales by 30 yards. It's a lovely night here in Wales. The uh, moon is out. You can look up at the sky and you can see all the stars. If you live in the city, you really don't know what you're missing. Only one guest on today's podcast. It's a very long interview uh, with my old friend Lucian Myers. It's very wide-ranging, but one of the themes which has comes through in that, I hope, uh, and it's a theme which I cover in Bearcast uh, quite regularly uh, on shareprofits.com, my daily podcast, is the way that the mood music of the market is changing. Whatever the politicians say, and if you, if you listen to the news, if you watch the BBC, it's all about Brexit. I'm so bored with Brexit. But there is this belief that Brexit is knocking the British economy, is going to damage us uh, beyond uh, uh, all relief, uh, whether we're going to be overwhelmed with uh, mutant locusts and we're all going to be dying of super gonorrhea and the plane's going to drop out of the sky. Of course, that's not going to happen. But there is this belief that Brexit is somehow damaging the British economy. Uh, it's one of the many examples of how the mainstream media just doesn't get it. Actually, the British economy grew in July. There's a very real possibility that we will avoid going into what is known as a technical recession. That possibility looks far more remote if you're on the other side of the English Channel. The European economy is in a far weaker state. And, of course, behind it is a very, very, very fragile banking system. Uh, The British banking system, God knows how, uh, is in far stronger shape. But it's not just Europe. Uh, We have data out of China, and of course, all Chinese data is completely and utterly fictitious anyway. Uh, But the data that is coming out is showing that there is a real slowdown in China. Uh, My friend Andrew Monk at VSA, who you will remember was my guest on the first Share Profits Radio, uh, is banging on about what's happening in India where there appears to be a very, very real economic slowdown. The Indian economy is facing some very, very uh, real problems. Uh, I'm hoping to go there uh, uh, to see relatives of my wife after Christmas, uh, and maybe I'll be reporting on it firsthand there. But the Indian economy does seem to be in very real trouble. Uh, So India's in trouble, China's in trouble, Europe's in trouble. Britain, despite Brexit, is in a bit less trouble, but clearly the economy is slowing. Uh, even in America, even in Donald Trump's America, uh, there are signs there uh, of slowdown. The number of CEO firings in August was the highest ever. Uh, the net layoffs announced were also at a very high level. Now, OK, new jobs are being created, but they're not necessarily as good as the jobs that are being lost. So the American economy is slowing down. One of the wild cards for the presidential election next year, if Trump, with all his uh, uh, talk of how tax cuts and the Trump economic miracle has sent the Dow to record highs, uh, if that bubble is somehow burst and the, and the Dow starts to come off and the economy is weakened, uh, I'd suggest that the odds of a Trump re-election uh, get a little bit longer. Uh, so the global economy is slowing. This is not a story about Brexit. 
It's just the way that things are. You have years of growth, your seven years of fat cows and your seven years of thin cows. This bull market, the recovery since the lows of 2008 uh, and the financial crisis, we're now in our 11th year of growth. That is a very, very long streak. If you look back at history, you'll see that bull markets expanding uh, economies tend to last a bit shorter than that, materially shorter than that. So this is a very long streak. And as always happens, eventually something cracks. There are all sorts of things to be worried about. The levels of personal debt, the levels of corporate debt, the levels of government debt. Uh, we have been living on the never-never. Artificially low interest rates have supported us in that belief. But in the end, such levels of debt are unsustainable. They will cause things to crack. You will find that vast amounts of capital has been misallocated in this era of easy money and of uh, irrational uh, uh, overconfidence on the part of investors, consumers, corporates, and I'm afraid, needless to say, governments as well. So it is no surprise. At some stage, I think it is inevitable, and I think this is something that Lucian and I discuss in the podcast, it is inevitable that the global economy will go into recession. Uh, people may talk about events that uh, trigger it, uh, whether it be instability in the Middle East or the trade wars with China. Uh, these, I suggest to you, are just sort of commas uh, uh, in punctuation marks in the narrative of what's happening to the global economy. Uh, it, may, it will not be one individual event that triggers it. It's going to happen. Why does this matter for us investors? Well, if you're invested in companies which don't have any balance sheet issues, which have net cash, and which are generating cash, and where there is some degree of earnings visibility, even if the economy slows down, uh, you are probably going to lose a bit of money because all shares come down in the event of a stock market crash. Uh, but your losses will be relatively limited. And as a long-term investor, uh, you shouldn't have too much to worry about. However, uh, the bull market has thrown up far too many companies which have ludicrous valuations, which have weak balance sheets, either cash, but it's going out the window at a rate of knots, or too much debt, and which have business models which uh, cannot survive if there is any economic chill. Uh, all of that will cause real pain. Uh, I used the phrase during the Lucian interview, the, the, the Warren Buffett phrase about when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming without any trunks. Uh, and that is the nature of stock markets. It's not just, of course, in quoted companies. We've seen it in numerous unquoted investments, uh, principally uh, on this side of the pond, in the investments made by Neil Woodford. Crazy valuations in the funding rounds of a couple of years ago, now re grim reality comes through uh, in the case of companies like Benevolent AI and I suspect Oxford Nanopore coming up. Grim reality comes through. Uh, pr private, private equity uh, companies, uh, back companies or unquoted companies, which were talking about IPOs, have to shelve those IPOs. We saw with Sirius today, having to, Sirius Minerals, having to shelve its bond offering. The climate is changing. The mood music is changing in the market. If your portfolio is consisted of companies which are not making money now uh, and which have balance sheet issues, uh, you could be suffering some very real pain indeed. That's one of the themes of the interview with Lucien, but it's a wide-ranging one, and we do cover a number of stocks uh, which are topical and of interest. And Lucien 
even comes up uh, with a long idea, although looking at the rating of his long idea, I think that may be uh, just him being on drugs. Uh, we uh, are happy that uh, listening uh, numbers for the Share Profits Radio podcast continue to grow. Uh, thank you very much for your support. Of course, the uh, podcast is free. We are only able to produce these pre- free podcasts because I don't work for nothing. Uh, thanks to the support of our sponsor, uh, Yorkville Advisors. Uh, Yorkville Advisors provides uh, capital in all sorts of forms, uh, debt, equity, convertible debts to a range of growth companies around the world. It's been going since 2001. Uh, it has a clean bill of health from the SEC after a detailed, if what, somewhat spurious investigation, something I suspect many uh, of its peer companies, less well-established operators, could not survive. Uh, in uh, chill times, in times when the stock market is going through a down phase, as it will inevitably, uh, uh, firms like Yorkville will no doubt come into their own. Uh, If you are a small company seeking growth capital, uh, you can find out more from Yorkville Advisors at yorkvilleadvisors.com. And please, if you do get in contact, mention that you heard about them on this podcast. Now, enough from me. Bring on the main event. My only guest on today's show is someone who's appeared here twice before. Uh, my old friend, the uh, godfather of my son, uh, Lucian Myers, the bard of the bowling, the famous Bear Raider. I called Lucian to fix this up yesterday, and he'd been down in the back streets behind the bowling, scoring some weed, and was smoking away. He said that this was because uh, uh, people had said he didn't know what he was talking about with cannabis, so he was doing some due diligence. You enjoyed your uh, your weed yesterday, Lucien? Well, I was a bit stung. I, in fact, I've only been on once before, I think, but um, not twice. But uh, I was a bit stung by uh, criticism the last time when I sounded off about the pot stocks. Um Although I have to say that the trade in selling the cannabis index in lieu of the S&P has been pretty successful. But I do I, I never pretended that I was knew particularly much about it. But I do I did do I have done a little bit of research largely because I went for a walk with a, a young guy and he was and I was asking him about your dealer. Stuff. No, 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 no. <laughs> and um, just a son of a friend of mine. So I was asking he was talking to me about the difference between CBD and uh, THC and recommended that I should go and try some CBD. So, what, the what's way, a, What is the difference between CBD uh, and THC? Well, CBD is... Um, we, were talk, we mentioned it last time about... Because I didn't realise that it, this is the medical application, which is the stuff that doesn't get you high and is much easier to legalise. In fact, if you wander into Holland and Barrett, which I did, you can buy the stuff in little vials, and as long as you sell it as a food supplement, and it's sort of vaguely regulated, um, it's perfectly legal, and it's supposed to kind of relax you. So anyway, that that was what I had a go at. I tried And THC is, is the... Is the THC is, is the stuff that gets you high, which is still basically illegal, but it, it, it's now legalized in Canada and certain states of the USA. But certainly for for um, pharmaceutical purposes, I don't think anything with THC in it has been has been uh, uh, approved by the FDA. But in fact, this, this is what leads me on to um, 
having the confidence rather than just shorting the cannabis index, which I am, and I think it's a, still a cracking short, was to actually have a look at some of the individual names in the life so, of what so I did. what happened, you, you got your CBD, which is the stuff yeah. that doesn't get you high. But it's supposed uh, it, it to make like, you relax. But I put it it's, like, it's like drinking alcohol-free beer. It's totally pointless. If you can't get well, hammered, no, no, why no. bother? <laughs> well, this is because it has medicinal uh, um, qualities. And so this beer. is what led me on. To, yeah, but the point about it is, is that um, it's supposed to, anyway, it's supposed to make you feel relaxed and has various, I forget what, you know, I think for different people it does different things. Anyway, I did put a couple of drops in my coffee, which made the coffee feel, uh, taste disgusting. And um, I didn't feel particularly relaxed. Maybe the caffeine sort of counteracts it. But anyway, the point is that I had Are you a meant to put it in your coffee or vape it, or can you put it in hash brownies? And that sort well, no, you can separately get stuff that you can vape, which is now quite popular. But you can put it in. You can do. You can just put it under your tongue. You can put it in uh, coffee, tea, whatever. But I should warn anyone who wants to try it who hasn't already that it, it does taste pretty disgusting. It tastes but, disgusting, and did it? And it did it chill you out at all? Well, no, because I think I, I put it in coffee, and I thought I did ask this guy. I said if you, he said, oh no, if you put it in coffee, it's quite good. But I did think to myself, um, presumably caffeine kind of is tugging you one way if, if this is supposed to relax you, and this is tugging you the other way. So it, actually, I didn't feel particularly relaxed taking it, but but it did lead me on to G. And how much did it cost, by the way? Um, it cost twenty quid for a. Um, very small kind of vial. I think it's 300 milli, milli whatnots. Okay, 20 quid for that. I, I heard it would actually have been cheaper just to go and get one of your kids to score some weed. Yeah, but this was for research purposes and also it has the benefit of being legal. So is it tax deductible, your 20 quid? Well, I, I guess it probably could be if you... If but you... but, 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 what, but it, the point is, it is more expensive than weed. Yes, it is more expensive than weed. I hadn't thought about it like that. There's but I guess it's weed. quite new, so I guess the prices will come down a lot as more and more people do it. And whether this is just a, a short-term craze or is here to stay, I'm, I'm just not sure. But but anyway, to so get... It's disgusting, the... it had no, no positive effects on you, and it costs a lot more than weed. Yeah, but it does different things to different people. And at the moment, it is the sort of trendy thing that all the young guys are talking about. I mean, if you Google CBD or um, what, what do they call it? Uh, can, cannabid oil, which is the, uh, you know, if you Google that, everybody's crazy about it. And it's sort of supposed to be therapeutic and everything. But anyway, so can I crazy, about all the financial markets are crazy about it. I put it to you that your kids, I mean, I don't want to tell tales on them, but I bet your kids are just going with the real stuff. Out there in the real world, people are just smoking dope, aren't they? I don't know. I don't know enough about it. I mean, the guy that was lecturing me on this claimed not to smoke dope. And he said a lot of kids, they instead of smoking dope and drinking beer, they like going to the gym and taking this stuff. But I don't know. I don't know. But I, can I, anyway, GW Pharma, which is what this led me on to, I had a look at because I was looking at the constituents of the IG uh, um, cannabis index. And because a lot of them have fallen very sharply, GW Pharma is now a very major constituent. I think it's the third largest. It's our own company. It's a UK company 
floated on uh, AIM, I think, and then one of the very few AIM stories that successfully made the transition across the pond and has been highly successful trading in ADRs in the States. And is, as far as I know, the only company that has managed to get FDA approval for their, who has a drug which at the moment is selling, um, it's called Epi, Epidiolex, and it's treated for epilepsy. And for some reason, by hook or by crook, they've got FDA approval to use this uh, CBD substance in their, in their drug. And it's capitalized at four and a half billion uh, US. And this product has now been sold for quite a few quarters. So I just had a look at it and I saw that but for a one-off profit that they made in the last quarter, they, they are still losing substantial amounts of money. And they've, they've now had, you know, first mover advantage on this because I think they're the only company that has FDA approval to sell this thing as a, uh, as a you know, cure for, in this case, epilepsy and I think a couple of other, th other diseases, MS, I think. And yet they are... Um, capitalized at this staggering amount and still not making any money. And the fact, having looked at it now, the barriers to entry, I think now that the whole field is, is looking at this, uh, at, at this um, industry, they, they, they can't be out on their own for very much longer. So there are going to be much more deep-pocketed people coming in, I, you would have thought, who are going to start eating their lunch. And the fact that they can't make any money at the moment suggests to me that, well, anyway, it's given me the confidence, having had the cursory look at this this sector that I should have done earlier and have done now, has given me the confidence to short it as an individual name over and above the cap, um, the index because it seems to me that it's a uh, huge, still hugely overvalued, and it's one of the few ones that whose shares haven't yet collapsed in the way that Tilray and Afria and Canopy and Kronos, all these things have sort of halved or fallen by more than half. GW is still like sort of 20% off, I think, the top. So I think isn't it's got... There, a, isn't, isn't there a, the general theme here is that some vast amounts of capital has been thrown at it by like friends like you, young man, your dealer. Vast amounts of capital has been thrown at this industry. And ultimately, it, it all more or less is a commodity play. Well, exactly, but, but um, with, in, in terms of FDA approval for this uh, CBD-based uh, IP that they've got, there must, I mean, it, it doesn't sound that, like it's that complicated. And now that it's out, people can obviously start uh, use, using the, this, I mean, you can't, you can't patent CBD. It is a natural substance. You can tinker around with it. But the fact that everybody's now trying to play this game suggests to me that there are going to be lots of other people applying to the FDA for variants on this, uh, you know, CBD application for other diseases, this, that, and the other. And that the, huge, the, the lead that GW Pharma have is going to be eroded very quickly. That, that, well, that's what I think. And I can't see. I mean, I, when I, I knew absolutely nothing about their um, financials until I look at them, and I saw, oh, they have made quite a lot of money. But 104 in the last quarter, 104 million of that was a one-off um, sale of a uh, particular right that they had. So if you take that out as a other income it came in as, they're still losing losing money by the shed load. And uh, I, I just can't see that that market cap can stick.
it's been a great. I mean, the, the Brits are very proud of it because it's, um, you know, the first mover, and it's a UK company. So all the, um, the cannabis is grown in Cambridge, I think. So it's shipped out to the states and um, Canada and everywhere else where it's legal. And it is, I think, quite a big market. Epilepsy. Um, and, and this drug is quite a big seller, but the fact they can't make any money on it and the competition's arriving... is not it, a good sign. No, I, I don't suppose, think I suppose that, uh, well, let's say, uh, yes, uh, Brits, of course, always had first mover advantage as the, in this sort of world, as the Chinese know full well. Um, away from uh, uh, cannabis, or well, I suppose you have to be on cannabis to, to take this story seriously, the big story for bears uh, over the past couple of days has been WeWork. Yeah, well... I think we work. I'm, I've had my doubts about whether they'd ever get it away, and I think it, it, it's a. It, I think it's more of a macro kind of indicator in a way than all this Gulf business and geopolitical business, which, in my experience, never really moves markets. Not, but I think everybody tries to play the game in hindsight, of, given that they don't ring a bell on when the market tops out as to an event that kind of either didn't cause it, but kind of symbolized it. Um, I mean, I wrongly thought in 2014 it might have been the ridiculous float of Alibaba, um, uh, you know, on, on uh, NASDAQ or, or New York Stock Exchange, I can't remember, all that fanfare and the horrible sort of, you know, sucking up to the Chinese and that crook, uh, Ma. But... Um, that was happened. That was five years ago. And I think now <laughs> the next candidate, which everybody's kind of la latched onto and really does seem to have hit the imagination, is this WeWork uh, flop. And WeWork, think, just to remind those, let's be honest, it, it does a uh, service to offices. It's a bit like Regis, but it does offices for dickheads with beers running dodgy new media startups and it provides them with beer and, and probably cannabis as well. Uh, and um, the more revenues it gets, the bigger its losses are. Yeah, would that yeah. be a summary of it? But, but I mean, the fact they were trying to they were trying to get it away at forty billion. Then they said, oh, 20 forty-seven billion. billion. Forty-seven billion. Then they said, you know, twenty billion. Then they said, oh, right, ten billion. And now it's been pulled. And I mean, it it just comes a point where you know, it, the, it, it was just so absurd. And this guy knew Adam Newman is obviously such a complete sort of con man that. Even the sort of greedy Wall Street advisors and banks say, look, come on, you know, this is just too much. You, you, he was the one who, he, he, he put a trademark on the word we and then sold it to the company for six and a half million dollars or something. Correct. In stock. Yeah, which he then sort of gave back rather, you know, in order to try and get the, the reduced IPO away. But by then it was sort of too little too late. But, you know, we've had Uber and we've had Lyft. And I think I'm pretty sure that when people look back, they will think this is, you know, the, the very fact that, you know, people have just down tools and say, look, enough is enough, you know. Uh, Uber, no problem. You know, Lyft, no problem. Uh, Pinterest, no problem. But, but sooner or later, you just say, no, hang on, guys. You know, this really is, even in this market, getting crazy. And Presumably, the sort of inst institutions that were being targeted were the sort of people who had got into Uber and the other things, and are now underwater seriously. And so they must also be sort of looking at their performance and thinking maybe this isn't such a smart move. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole thing just eventually grinds to a halt. And you, you normally have a poster child for, uh, of a particular ridiculousness that 
that kind of symbolizes it. And I think this this one is it. But I, you know, I think it, look looking back, if we can sort of fast forward a year and look back, I think you, you'll probably find a bit of a domino effect because WeWork in itself is not particularly important. Although I think it's got you know sort of existential risk now. The fact that they just say, okay, we're going to put it on the back burner. I mean, they need cash to survive. To, to survive. So there's, there's a possibility there's a big, that we work will go bust, isn't there? I think there's a big possibility of that, and, and uh, which brings me on to the sort of big elephant in the room, which is SoftBank, because SoftBank has been the absolute sort of driver of this craziness. And, you know, they are in Alibaba. They've been in all these tech startups, getting, getting more and more ridiculous. A lot of them have done very well, like Alibaba. But the fact is that the whole SoftBank business plan is just so crazy. They are so indebted. And I think that, you know, it could well be, I'm not saying that SoftBank right at this moment are in any financial danger, even if they have to write off 100% of their investment in in WeWork rather than throwing good money after bad. But, but this is the sort of thing, if you start knocking confidence, and I would think, you know, that sooner or later that the, uh, you know, if, if the market really does kind of react badly to all this nonsense, and we get a downturn, and we get a recession, and we get you know serious um, risk back back uh, off. Um, SoftBank's uh, future could be in doubt. I mean, I think so, SoftBank. Well, let's remind ourselves: it put in two million dollars at the forty-seven billion valuation, and that what was was what was driving the initial IPO price. They, yeah, I mean, they put. I don't know how much SoftBank have got in. We work all together because they've done all the runs all the way up from from low all the way up to the the last run, which was 40 billion, I think. Um, but you know they've got these huge uh, you know sort of startup funds plus invest directly themselves. And I would think you know if we get a serious shakeout, I think SoftBank could could very very well be a, a big casualty of that. SoftBank is I mean, sort of almost Woodford-esque in the sense yes, that absolutely. their relatively small final drive uh, funding round for WeWork allowed them to write up their asset value. But when yeah, yeah. they're not able to prop it up anymore, the whole thing collapses, as we see with yeah. some of the Woodland yeah. stocks. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a good description. I mean, it's like a, a very trendy, um, massive, much huge uh, version of, uh, of Woodford. You know, that these... Uh, although they, they never had the sort of background of being, you know, safe and steady like Woodford did. But, um, they, you know, they, they, they are absolute. Um, yeah, I think SoftBank, well, in two or three years' time, or even one year's time, one might look back and say, oh, SoftBank was the major casualty of the, of the um, market sell-off or, the, or the, change in, the change in risk appetite for... The, the huge bull, 10-year bull market from 2009 onwards. Of course, if, if we work does fail, there is another implication, which, of course, there's going to be a lot of office space uh, uh, looking for uh, new owners, which is going to put further pressure on that sector. Well, I don't think they've got a huge amount of office space right at the moment, but, um, you know, I, I don't think they're a big player, but I, it's, it's, it's just symptomatic. I think they're the third largest owner of office space in the United States. Right. Well... I didn't know. It may not be for much longer. No, no. But, okay, come in. So, so you think, you, in a sense, I'm just wondering about that, Lucian, because uh, certainly in the dot-com crash, what was uh, the sort of moment we looked back and thought, this is insanity, was actually a flotation that got away, last-minute dot-com. 
Yes, that is, I mean, obviously it's much bigger than lastminute.com. But, but lastminute.com was symbolic in that everybody, yeah. I was about the only person in the country who didn't buy shares in lastminute.com when it was clearly an absolutely insane business model. And actually, the, you know, the core last minute business, uh, you know, they did sell the PLC, but the business that floated never made a cent. Um, but everybody got involved. Isn't that a sort of top of the market signal yes. rather, than, rather than the collapse? Of an IPO. No, well, it, I seem to remember, correct me if I'm wrong, that lastminute.com collapsed pretty soon. I, I know it was taken out much later, but um, I think it pretty much rang the bell on the uh, on the IPO market, didn't it? I mean, it, it, I, it, I don't know. I can't even remember whether it opened at a premium. If it did, it very soon went to a discount, I think. You're right. But the, my, my point was that it got away and yeah. everybody... In the whole country, more or less, seemed to own shares in the company. Everyone yes. had applied for it, apart from me. Um, you're right that pretty soon after the IPO, the share price started cratering. I do remember recording a podcast with Brent Hoban about three or four months after, and he got so bad temper with my questioning, he slammed the phone down. Uh, and I got him on tape slamming the phone down and being increasingly bad tempered. But it actually got away. And that showed to me that was the the height of greed, it was, you know, your you, shoeshine boy buying shares. Isn't that a sort of more of a top of the market sign than a big IPO being pulled? Well, I think they're quite similar in that there was certainly that kind of feeling at the time. This is getting a bit crazy, even though they got the IPO away. You know, there was definitely that kind of, you know, um, last chance sort of, uh, feeling. I remember feeling it at the time, thinking, oh, that it'll probably go to a premium, but, you know, this is getting a bit crazy. And if you remember, the press were beginning to start getting a bit sort of jumpy and saying, hang on a minute, this is getting a bit silly. And uh, there was definitely that top of the market sort of feeling about it, as I think quite similar to Uber. I know that Uber haven't got their IPO away, but they very nearly might have done. Um, but there was that same kind of feeling in the air of I'm thinking, right, Okay, guys, things now are just getting a bit out of hand. And we're, okay, last minute was lucky, but and and managed to sell itself at a, re, at a pretty decent price, although at a huge discount to the IPO price. Where and we work may well not go bust for a bit. It could well be that SoftBank do bail it out. But uh, you know, there's that same kind of feeling in the air with the, both the dot com bubble and what I think we're in now, which is sort of dot com two. So you think you think the, the feelings? Are, you say you ignore events, macroeconomic events, you know, trade wars with China, uh, Iran, and Saudi Arabia um, threatening to go to war with Donald Trump backing. Oh yes, yeah, hard to know which is the wrong side. I think they're both wrong sides. But uh, you know, Donald Trump getting involved. I think Mr. Putin's trying to sell weapons to both sides. Isn't will people not look back on that and say it was a funny moment, or is it? Uh, no. The question, uh, you know, did the, uh, the, the, the danger field, the strange death of liberal England, did the, the man who walked in front of the omnibus, did he die because of the omnibus or because he had a heart attack? No, no, I think in my experience that um, the market, uh, when, the, when it turns, it normally turns for economic and uh, sentiment reasons. Not that, I, I can't think of many crashes that are triggered by geopolitical things. And I, and I think 1974. People tend to, well, the market didn't, I mean, the market was, had been doing very badly before 1974. I think that people tend to always over-egg geopolitical concerns. Uh, look, at the, uh, look at the price of oil 
today. It's, you know, down 7%. So, you know, it's got back, you know, there's huge headline up 15% yesterday. Well, it's lost half of that now. You know, things are different as well from the 70s. I mean, I bet you there'll be conspiracy theorists now saying that this whole uh, drone strike was a, was a cunning plot between Trump and the uh, Mossad in order to screw the Chinese and the Iranians because now that the USA are... Uh, um, more or less self-sufficient in oil, the people who would be really affected by a higher oil price are China. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's all these things, you know, it, I don't think the price of oil is really that relevant now. And also, this, this, I think this thing about a massive dust-up between the Saudis and the Iranians is, is, uh, is much more of a long shot than people think. I mean, that, these guys are all aware of the risk. And much as I disapprove of Trump and, and uh, I dislike him intensely. I think that the one area where he's reasonably good, unlike Bush and Obama, is that for sort of business reasons, he really is pretty anti-war. You know, he's got, got, got them out of Afghanistan, or he's trying to. And I really, despite all his sort of, you know, saber-rattling with the North Koreans and with the Iranians, I don't think he really is going to start chucking bombs and stuff around, and you know, it's just there's too just too much of risk, and he's naturally averse to that. So, I may be wrong, but you know, I think that all this scary stuff, I think, passes over pretty quickly. I think far more scary, really, is what's going on in the world economy. Well, that's what I was going to come to. Is, is all the evidence is that uh, the Chinese economy? I mean, their numbers completely bogus, as we know anyway. But it's clearly slowing down. The eurozone. Are slowing down big time, and they've got a very fragile banking system behind it. Uh, the UK, despite Brexit, doing relatively well, but uh, all over the world, the sign that economic growth is slowing, which of course means that earnings forecasts will come down. Uh, certain companies which are overborrowed could face cash flow problems, and the ratings of the market at the moment were pretty close to all-time highs. Don't discount that, do they? Not at all, not at all. And as I say, it's, I mean, I think as everybody knows, I mean, people aren't stupid. You know, people think the central bankers and, the, and people on Wall Street are stupid. They're not. I mean, everybody knows the situation, I think. Um, it's just a question of when it's going to happen. And people obviously, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, if you put yourself in the position of a central banker to try and pull out of the sort of nosedive that they've got, the, you know, in terms of mess that they've got everything into, it's very difficult to know how to get out of it. So not the human nature being what it is, people think, well, you know, I'll get out before, before it really gets nasty. You know, and then it gets nasty. So I think everybody is just waiting to see, you know, when when it's going to happen. You know, do we get a recession um, next quarter or the quarter after that or the quarter after that? It's going to happen. Clearly, it's going to happen. And uh, I mean, nobody, I, I don't think people are un, under any illusions that this bull market has, is on anything other than its last legs or, or close to its last legs. And of course, but, when uh, the tide goes out, we get to see who's swimming with no trunks. And that brings yeah. us very nicely to... Uh, Vasarian, which you talked about on one of your two previous uh, appearances on Share Profits Radio. Um, what's happening there? Um, well, that's the other uh, thing. Well, I was going to talk about Tesla, but to quickly to cover Vasarian, I mean, I, I think I mentioned it um, in, a, in a written piece the other day. I mean, I think time is running out to a degree with Vasarian in that... In that um, this sort of big picture thing has got to be produced pretty soon, i.e. A, a big deal coming out of China. 
or I think people are going to start getting impatient. I mean, they've kept the plate spinning now for what? When, when was the IPO? Quite, well, when did they start getting involved in graphene? 2014, 15? Like yeah, five yeah. years of plate spinning. So five years of plate spinning and, and, and they sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink promise that something big's going to happen at or around the AGM with the Chinese. Um, you know, if it doesn't, I think you see the share price was a little bit weak the last few days. You know, people are going to start breaking ranks on this one, I think. And, you know, all these little things adding up, I think that you uh, pointed out the other day, this nonsense in America that, you know, they're supposed to have this office and, and, and I think they called it a hub and, you know, even a lab up and running in Texas. And uh, it doesn't seem to have any presence at all, as you pointed out, I think, in an article, this... Uh, uh, replacement to the ridiculous Patrick Abbott, who they stood by and then fired. We've been through that before. This guy, new guy called Brian Buddy. I mean, he doesn't even bother to put his new appointment on his LinkedIn profile. He seems to share, or his offices, the Vasarian Inc. offices, seem to be shared with Patrick Abbott's old firm before he joined Vasarian, and presumably which he's gone back to now. Also with one of the I noticed that they also share offices with one a company that they claim to be doing a deal with called BP Polymer. And um, they have no website, no telephone number. I mean, if you tried to think, right, put yourself in a position of an American company desperate to do a graphene deal with Versailles, I mean, how would you get hold of them? What's their telephone number? Where There's are their no people? telephone yeah. number. There is no website. Uh, their offices are in Patrick Abbott's building. To give me credit, Patrick Abbott had real offices with real staff and did seem to know something about graphene. Uh, the new guy, as you say, has completely disappeared. And uh, I, I suggest to you that their claim in the May RNS that they had a fully functional hub staffed, etc., cetera, uh, in uh, Houston is, as you say, complete uh, 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 nonsense. Uh, the issue for Vasarin is the market cap is what today? And the graphene part of Vasarian has absolutely pitiful sales. Yeah, Truly but, pitiful. Uh, as, they, as they admit. But the point is that, you know, they say we've got no sales, but we've got all this stuff in the pipeline. You know, something's got to start happening pretty soon. Or, or people, you can just tell people are going to start getting pissed off. Well, they basically had three things. The US, where the president seemed to have disappeared. They have the, this e-com deal where everybody's getting excited about that. Nobody has asked any questions like, well, what is the size of Ecom's contract with uh, British Transport or British Rail or whoever it is? How much, how many arches are they possibly likely to order? When will they order them? How much graphene in terms of weight do you put in these arches? What do the arches weigh? How much are you going to sell the graphene for? You know, none of these questions are, are asked. It's all, oh, Graphene, uh, graphene is the only, um, Nanine, which is their graphene product, is the only product in the world which has been uh, verified. What, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It means that they paid some American institution to say, yeah, your stuff is graphene, you know, whatever that means. And, uh, uh, and um, <clears throat> so that's, you've got the econ thing which gets people excited. Well, that seems to have gone on the back burner since they all went down to Bristol. And so now it's, oh, the Chinese are going to come and buy 15% of the company uh, at or around the AGM. Well, the AGM's next week. 
So, you know, maybe there'll be some sort of funny deal. But, you know, that, from what I know of the Chinese, I mean, the Chinese will be looking to find ways of taking money off Versaria, not the other way around. That's how the Chinese operate. And the idea that they're sort of falling over themselves to buy a, a stake in a, in a nothing company worth 150 million is just complete cloud cuckoo land. I mean, well, we've seen companies which have done deals with, with Chinese, I think, of uh, our friends at Providence Resources in the uh, Irish Republic, uh, 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 announcing that the Chinese were putting in $9 million on June the 4th. And uh, oddly enough, the cheque uh, has just um, not arrived yet. Yeah. It's, it's not entirely a happy history, is it? I mean, the only thing that might sort of work, you know, if, if the Chinese who have an eye to the main chance, they might say, well, you give us a whole load of stock. And we'll uh, um, park some money in China and we'll sort of run the money for you. So they get the stock, they flog the stock, they put the money up in a subsidiary in China, they, they allow the auditors to see it and then they spend it. So they get the stock and the money and, and the money back. I mean, it'll be, if, if there is a deal, it'll be that sort of thing. I mean, the Chinese aren't in the business of handing out cash to worthless companies. Well, in my view, worthless, a worthless company. I mean, unless you believe all this sort of spiel but you know having spoken to a few people in the graphene industry it just doesn't work like these naive retail um investors think think, think it works insofar as they sort of have an understanding of it you know it, it, it's just not like it's not like how they say it is and all these little things that don't add up which we talked about last time and you know with the american thing all these little sort of lies and half truths thing i mean like for instance nanomat you know in the in the report and accounts this nanomat was clearly kind of insolvent um, when they took it over why did they pay the money the, 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 why did they issue the stock to take it out that they did why did they do it partly in cash into the company and then partly to the existing shareholders and why in the annual report do they contradict themselves about what they paid for Nanomat? You know, this is a what, Spanish uh, joke uh, operation. Yeah, it's, a, it's a little Spanish sort of nothing company. And I mean, even that has a website, which is, you can't be said about the US operation. I mean, in the beginning of the annual report, it says that they paid 2.6 million. I mean, I know it's a little thing, which was X amount of cash and shares issued at 150p. And then further on, where they actually have to put it in the accounts, uh, account for the acquisition they've got it at uh, three point something million so they just jacked the shares up to 178 the same amount of shares they issued but they say oh well they were issued at one one pound 78p um uh, sorry well, one pound 78 it's it's just sort of sloppy and it's not how proper companies operate and you know sam, Ant sam antar wouldn't have made that error would he no no i mean i'm not saying it's a fraud it's just I, I, I mean, you know, again, I've got a very small short position in it, not because I don't feel confident about being short, but because there's, there's practically no borrow. But I just, it does make me a bit angry that, um, you know, Ricketts, in, almost not specifically, but he, he a lot of, as I think I've said this before, a lot of people have got, you know, really huge portions of their sort of net worth in this stock and, you know, believe the dream, thoroughly egged on by Ricketts. And when it all goes to pot, which it will, um, you know, it's, there's going to be a lot of people, you know, well, who are very hard done by. And, you know, if, fine if Rick had sort of said, look, I think this is great and we're, you know, I'm very energetic and I'm doing all I can to make this work. But, you know, 
be advised that this is a very high-risk venture. We have no assets. We have no sales. We have no earnings. And everything is, you know, there's a lot of sort of hope involved here. But he doesn't have that kind of attitude. And, and, and you know, t like taking all his inner circle down to Bristol and sort of whipping them up. And, you know, when it ends in tears, I think a lot of people are going to be very pissed off. They've got no one but themselves to blame. But I still think that, I mean, I guess that's just not what promoting... CEOs alike, and it's maybe naive to suggest that they should be a little less sort of um, uh, hype conscious. But I mean, just lastly on Versarion, I, I do I think it's good. Um, I blow your trumpet slightly by calling out Ricketts on tweeting that, which, which again I think is probably a little untruth that, that, that so announcing that some some Chinese enterprise wanted to buy 30 or 29.9 percent of the firm no price involved, no name involved. And uh, he was obviously t um, pulled up on this by his nomads, that you don't tweet that you've effectively received a bid for the company. That's not, you know, it's a bit like his hero, which we'll move on to in a minute, Elon Musk. Um, but I noticed since then, apart from tweeting about Tesla, he <laughs> and a few um, non-graphene-related things, he's gone as quiet as a mouse about ramping... Uh, well, yeah, we, we've had an article uh, exposing him. It's clearly his nomad has said, Neil, enough is enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. can't behave like this. That's my point. So I'm saying that um, that's a good thing. That's, that's, it is that, a good that thing. That's my point. That since that, um, that RNS that he was forced to, to clarify the situation, he's just stuck to... Um, to uh, promoting uh, Tesla. Promoting Tesla. And, uh, to, to give him his due, he's not promoting the stock, he's promoting the car, which I'm sure is a very lovely car. But, well, uh, all the shares he sold, he could afford to buy one. Let's hope it doesn't spontaneously combust. Um, yeah. On the subject of shareholders losing everything and feeling sorry for them, uh, the bulletin boards today had a whole lot of people who own shares in Sirius uh, uh, Minerals. Uh, apparently, one bloke saying he was contemplating suicide, he'd bet the ranch. Oh, oh. Uh, other people saying, I don't quite know how I'm going to break this to my wife. Uh, it tends to be men on bulletin boards. Uh, my wife said uh, that I'm basically I've blown it all. Do you feel any sorry, any sympathy for such people? Yes, I do. Um, I, of course, I do, and I think it's terrible. But again, um, I mean, I I feel a bit sorry for myself on Sirius because I've got it wrong twice. And you know, to return to the sort of theme of. Um, China and lying, which we've just slightly sort of touched on. Um, I, I first got involved in uh, uh, Sirius on the short side at about 8p in 2014. And the reason I did that was because um, Chris Fraser, who is and was the CEO, said, uh, I noticed he did a death spiral uh, financing and um, this this was before he got the brokers excited, and uh, you know, in, which I've seen this before. But he 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 was one of these guys who introduced the, the, what was clearly a death spiral financing, and said this shows um, how the institution uh, this shows great confidence in our project by the institution, which of course it did nothing of the kind. So I sort of thought to myself, here's a liar, he's <laughs> lying, and he's just gone into a death spiral. Let's short them. So I shorted them, and then, you know, weeks later, Macquarie Bank and Liberum then tipped up and raised him 42 million quid, paid off the death spiral, um, <laughs> the death spiral provider who he'd 
he'd announced as a patient and uh, interested shareholder, uh, paid, paid them off. And um, the shares then shot up. And then the finance director left and the whole thing went to hell again. And uh, then the, uh, he, he managed to keep the show on the road. Then he told, two, he told a couple of China lies. Um, if you remember, shortly before one uh, fundraising of the many that he's done, he said that he'd found this China company who were going to be their largest, cu largest customer uh, um, to take their offtakes. It was called D Dian Huang. And, you know, the, the FT, to their credit, were all over this. And so they got hold of this company, which was supposed to be 40% backed by uh, the Yunnan mun municipality, which in turn was backed by the Chinese government. And they were going to be the largest uh, customer for, for uh, <coughs> um, Sirius. And uh, this, I think, and I don't want to be accused of libel or anything, but I think this was, I mean, they were, they were always within a few months of a placing. But, I mean, you know, it was on the back of this, I think, that some money was raised. Of course, then it turned out that this company, backed by the Chinese government, 40% owned by the Yunnan municipality, um, was uh, struck off for failing to pay a £31,000 bill. <laughs> <laughs> by some seed company. <laughs> so they then had to announce that the deal was off. That was when I shorted them for the second time. But then they jumped out of that because they found another Chinese company to be their biggest client. And so I sort of rather gave up on it then. And I feel no pleasure at all to see people uh, uh, losing money on it now. But just a couple of things on that. One, you can make a lot of money backing somebody who's telling lies, right? If you'd bought... Um, if you're a trader, if you bought Sirius at the IPO or Versarin at the IPO or Tesla at the IPO, um, you, there, if you get your timing right, you can make a lot of money. But as a general rule, if you want to be in the investment game for long periods, don't back somebody who tells lies. And, Think about and, if, you, if you're prepared to tell lies, you know, you're always going to hit your earnings forecasts. Well, that's true, but, but the best yeah. people are hitting earnings forecasts. Just ask Sam Anta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never yeah. missed him once. I, I'm not talking about fraud so much. I'm talking. I'm, that's I'm, I'm, I'm talking about just just sort of telling unnecessary fibs, you know. And and I, it wasn't. You could argue it wasn't Sirius who told the fib. It was the Chinese client who told the fib. But it seemed like Sirius were pretty desperate to get a client and clearly had done no due diligence on. <laughs> They're a huge company that was uh, failed to pay a £31,000 seed bill. The couple of other observations on Sirius is, I think, you know, we, we admire the Aussies for cricket and mining, don't we? And, and the fact is that Chris Fraser and Thomas Staley, the, the uh, finance director, he's not even an accountant. And we tend to think, you know, these sort of slightly brash Aussies come into town and say, we'll teach you a thing or two about mining or cricket for that matter and we think oh god you know they're miners the Aussies are miners you know by nature we better believe everything they say well if you remember another Aussie who you know as well John Hempton at the time told me this is an unbelievably ambitious project and you know it has a very very high chance of not working and uh, but you know all the advisors oh god they, they, they these guys are Aussies of course they know about mining big mining projects so I think there was a lot of um, credulity the fact that these young Aussies, they're both relatively young, came in, swinging into town and say, we're going to 
give, we're going to deliver to you the biggest mining project that the UK's ever seen kind of thing. And I mean, it, you know, just the scale of the thing is absolutely enormous. Yeah, I noticed today it was like the sort of third item on the news after bloody old Brexit and the Gulf, you know, is this huge great Yorkshire project in danger. Anyway, I've shorted them today simply because I think that anybody who comes in as a big partner, which is their only chance, obviously, I mean, effectively, the mine is now mothballed until they can get somebody to back it, pr presumably with a modified project slightly modified why do they want why do they are they in any need at all to give the shareholders anything at all i mean they could just come in and get, go straight to the convertible debt holders of which there's 180 million left i think and uh, i think it's oh, maybe it's 128 million i can't remember but because they, they, they had to give back 400 million today which was held in escrow so the balance which is trading at sub 50 cents on the dollar incidentally um you know how can they get away a, a debt issue for starters when their existing debt is yielding 30 40 percent to maturity you know they you can't raise money at that kind of coupon and you can't raise money at less than that coupon when that's what their debt is trading at so if you and and, and for, as for i mean I, I said to myself it's a matter of time before people says well once uh, Brexit's over, because they blame Brexit quite a bit. BHP will come in and bid for it. And sure enough, on the bulletin board, there was somebody saying exactly that. BHP will come in for it. Um, well, but the point is, when the when the desk is trading at that sort of level, if it's at 50 cents in the dollar, that's telling you the equity is worthless. Absolutely. And, and if BHP does come in for it, or anyone comes in for it, you know, all they need to do is, is to give the the bondholders a bit less of a haircut than the market is giving them and, so, and and do a sort of Thomas Cook on the shareholders, you know, say, well, you can have 1% of the company or something. So, you know, this thing, it may look like a little... I'd, I'd looked at the market cap today, I hadn't looked at it for a bit, and I thought, oh, what is it going to be now? Probably 100 million. It's, it was 360 million. That's having hard. I mean, there's no way people were going to spend that kind of money on the equity. So it's, um, it's, it's potentially, it's a Thomas Cook, you, um, uh, you, you might be left with something, possibly not even listed something, um, or it's nothing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it'll be, exactly, but it'll be, I mean, Thomas Cook's going to happen next week, so it's not going to be, it's not going to happen next week, because they've got six months, so they say, so it'll linger on a bit, and doubtless there'll be ups and downs, you know, there'll be uh, macro, there'll be uh, um, BHP bids, and there'll be, some guy in Thomas Cook's case, the Turkish guy who took a 6% stake. There'll be all sorts of ups and downs. But I mean, it's de you definitely won't. I mean, I got my feet wet today because uh, there's borrow on it. And, you know, if somebody said to you, you know, the fact that the stock's been 40p and now 4p, I think it got as high as 40p. The fact that you can forget that. The fact that you can say here is a, a 300 million pound company, which is where the equity, whether well, as you just said, the bonds are trading at less than 50p in the pound, which tells you the equity is worthless. I mean, in my game, that's you have to short it. I mean, it's. it's is it, well, one final I mean, on, on serious, there were people suggesting that uh, it's the wicked bloody Tories, that Sajid Javid, um, refusing to for the government <laughs> to uh, underpin it. Uh, why yeah, the hell should the government underpin uh, uh, companies where they can't get financing in the in the bond markets? 
I agree. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, thank God the government didn't didn't put in. A, I mean, the government would be and and he blamed. You know, he said, "Oh, if only the government hadn't backstopped a million quid of debt, we'd be all right." Billion quid of debt. A billion, one billion, billion quid. Yeah. Yeah, let's sack a whole load of let's sack a whole load of nurses and sell the Royal Navy to bail out serious minerals. To the to the credit to the member of parliament, he did say, "Well, look, the government's not really into uh, speculative mining ventures. It's not their job to backstop speculative mining ventures." But I mean, the size of the thing is, you know, they were going to dig a hole for one and a half kilometres vertical hole uh, down. And then along a tunnel for 23 miles. I mean, it sounds like a pretty amazing feat of engineering. But, I mean, all this to mine a stuff that, you know, is, that nobody really knows a lot about it. And, um, you know, it's there are plenty of alternatives it? to it. It's fertilizer. <coughs> no, and you imagine the, the whole concept of shipping fertilizer out to China. I mean, and think about, uh, you know, that. do you remember that little... Aim Tiddler Harvest Minerals, who had all that fertilizer in Brazil and a huge market. You know, the idea that fertilizer is, uh, because it's sort of very trendy, you know, uh, agriculture and, you know, getting yield, farming yields better and everything. It, it, you know, to, to, to treat this product, which is pretty unknown and the pricing is extreme, extremely difficult to predict, as like it's some sort of semi precious metal, is absolutely absurd. But, but it's, you know, the ridiculous as, as, thing which some of the shareholders were saying is that this is a national asset, which is why the government should secure it. We, we, we've lived without this national asset for yeah. 50 years. Why the bloody hell do we need it? Well, it's like all these things. It's a, um, it, you know, it makes us a proud to be British kind of. Then they weren't going to ruin the countryside. They were going to employ a couple of thousand people. Uh, you know, great plucky British engineering. Okay, run by a couple of likely lads from Oz. Uh, did I mention the finance director? He's not even an accountant, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You did mention that, yeah, yeah. But, but uh, you know, th that's a pretty big project for a young guy who's not even an accountant to be sort of in charge of the finances for. And to be honest, you know, the writing was on the wall. Anyway, I'm not crowing or, or uh, I've lost money net, net twice being short of Sirius, and I'm now short again. And so I you're going could, for your hat trick. I could well lose money. I've not, not got a big position. But I think situations like this, as, as a general rule to now move on from Sirius, if, if a stock you can get borrow, it's liquid, and you can, uh, uh, and you can sell equity at, at, at a valuation sort of north of 100 million when the bonds are t uh, uh, less than 50 cents on the dollar you know if you don't you know if you do that 10 times you're going to make money nine and a half times and if you lose money then you lose money but uh, you know i can't think of a uh, i can't think of a circumstance well i can actually think of one or two but uh, that goes with that goes back many many years when i last lost money on a trade like that okay well let's go to one where you've lost money as before as well tesla um uh, I didn't. I had not read the Solar City uh, court transcripts until last week, and I published them on Share Profits. Mm. They are quite amazing. Yeah. Elon Musk is the biggest crook mm. on this mm. planet. No offence to Rob Terry. I hope you don't feel bad about it, but Elon Musk is in a class of his own. Well, there are two cases going through at the moment. The the, the more damaging to Tesla is uh, the Solar City one. But more interesting and more perhaps... Uh, uh, is he not? Is the pedo one? Is the, have you read the Musk deposition <coughs> in the pedo case? 
Yes, I, I have. Mean, yeah. <laughs> have you post? You should post that on your side. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. But if I can just, I spent, funny enough, a bit fair chunk of the last weekend reading cover to cover the new book out on Tesla, which is called Ludicrous, by this guy Ed Niedermeyer. Um, which is, I mean, it, he, he's, a, he's an auto journalist, but he absolutely gets him spot on. He, he, it's very, very good. And it taught me a lot. I mean, I thought I knew a fair amount about Tesla, but he teaches you a lot about it, particularly about the early days, um, because I really only started following it from about 2017 onwards. But, I mean, it, it, you, you, un, you start to understand uh, Musk a lot more by reading it, simply because... You know, he's just so used to getting away with it. I mean, I would recommend anybody to read the book, but you'd learn things, for instance, like this, you know, the, the famous 420 funding secured tweet. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that was the third time he'd pulled off that trick. You know, he'd, 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 the company's come so close to bankruptcy before. He, he, he pulled it off with a $40 million raise that he said he had in the bag when he hadn't. I think that was back in 2012 or something like that. And then later, which in 2013, which was a miracle year for Tesla because they were just about to go bust. And uh, he announced that he'd received a grant from the government for something like $420 million um, from the uh, Department of Energy in the States. He hadn't even applied for the grant at that point. So, you know, when he sort of gets away, and then, of course, that boosted confidence, and eventually the money did come in. But, I mean, it's just t being able to get away with lies like that uh, is, you know, you can understand why he just thinks he, he can just piss on anybody. But he, and, he's uh, also, one of the things I saw in the Solar City deposition was that he, uh, rather like our friend David Williams at Avanti yeah. Communications, which was booted off AIM this week, finally, uh, at a 0.15 of a P, having once been eight quid when Williams sold all his shares. Williams fabricated a product demonstration, got in yeah. investment money on the back of it, uh, and then being such an arrogant cocksucker, he boasted about how he... He, uh, he planted yeah. the story in the press about how he'd lied to investors to get money in. Yeah. Elon Musk is shown in the Solar City deposition that he just fabricated a product yeah, demonstration. And he'd done that as well. Again, if you read Ashley Vance's book, he, the first company he ever did, he was doing that. But far more similar, funny enough, to the Avanti one, which was sort of uh, showing these fancy-looking computers and having somebody behind a curtain sort of, you know, typing out in real time. I mean, but when you get away with that a few times, you just think you can walk on water. But, but just to, on Tesla, what's quite interesting on, on this book is, and again, this is just a general thing about fraud, which I think you uh, uh, touched on with Sam Anto on, on his excellent chat with you, which is that when, when you start kind of overdoing the hype and telling lies and pushing your aggressive accounting, there comes a point, uh, I mean, a bit the, the, the sort of, uh, you know, fake it till you make it like Theranos. There comes a point where you push over in, onto the dark side and start committing fraud. And what Niedermeyer suggests is that Tesla have more or less... Well, they've reached that point with, with um, Solar City. But the problem with Solar City was, which is why the court case is coming through now, and it, I don't think it's enough to bring them down, is that there was no obvious victims because the, the Tesla share price took off like a rocket even after the the uh, 
um, takeover. So that until, you know, it's really only a thing you can really start sort of claiming damages for in hindsight, because although obviously you were ripping off the share, the Tesla shareholders by by uh, diluting them, though nobody was complaining because the shares were going up all the time. But where, uh, but and again, I think one of the weaknesses of the book is that he doesn't really dwell too much on that solar city thing, which was an egregious piece of fraud right up there with with uh, the 420 funding secured tweet. But where, where the uh, Niedermeyer suggests that he really is pushing over onto the dark side is, um, you know, the fact that Model 3 is obviously not working, that he can't ever ma make any money out of it, and that uh, sales are going to probably be lower, lower this year, numbers of car cars sold and, you know, sales in dollar terms than they were last year, that for a growth company, that he's now invented in a kind of quite Theranosish sort of way, this full self-driving uh, autonomy business, which is like Theranos, dangerous because it's putting people's lives at risk. He's lying about when this capability is going to happen. And he's having to hang the whole Tesla story now on this sort of fraudulent uh, perception that that uh, you can buy a Tesla car and it'll prove to be an asset, and um, it, it, you know it, it's 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 just crossing over the line from telling lies and saying dear old Elon, a little bit more hype, um, into you know having to be uh, deceitful with the uh, NHTSA, it's called the National um, Auto Safety Body. It's having to you know lie to uh, get customers to uh, sign non-disclosure agreements when anything goes r horribly wrong with the with the um, full self-driving, which is again, you know, sort of pushing on the illegal. In fact, I think it is illegal, which is again what Niedermeyer brings up, and is just really beginning to go over to the dark side because you know you have to justify the share price. Model Three won't do it. He hasn't got the money to get anything else going before they run out of money again. So in order to get money, and he's got to completely alter the business plan with this completely fraudulent autopilot uh, jumping on the back of, uh, you know, Waymo and uh, Uber. And it's just that, that I think is going to be the, be the end of it. I mean, in between, you've got the China hype. But, you know, where, where, I, think, I think Tesla really is going to, you could just feel people beginning to just lose patience with Elon. Gee, uh, obviously, what he needs to do is get some graphene. He should call up his, uh, the head of his fan club, Neil Ricketts. But sadly, no sales office in the United States. But uh, I'm sure he can get through. <laughs> Maybe they tweet to each other. Uh, the uh, the uh, question about Tesla, obviously, uh, as with all frauds, and I think Tesla is a fraud, so if you want to sue me, I'll, I'll stand in court next to the pedo guy. Um, uh, it's going to run out of other people's money sooner or later, isn't it? And particularly if there's a market correction, then people are going to be a lot more wary about investing in a company which is run by an obvious liar and fraudster. Yeah, well, going back to the WeWork thing we talked about, um, what's hopefully what will happen, a sort of trickle-down effect from WeWork, is, I mean, if you think about it, the whole Tesla story is every bit or very nearly. In fact, I would, I would stick to every bit as ridiculous as the WeWork story. Um, and, and to Elon Musk and Adam Newman, are peas out of the same pod, you know, sort of flashy liars, corner cutters, 
bullshitters. Uh, I'd say Musk is probably even maybe a bit worse than Adam Newman, although Newman might have sort of been a bit more uh, greedy because he was starting from a lower base. But anyway, the fact is that hopefully people looking at uh, WeWork are going to start thinking, hang on a minute, Tesla's not too dissimilar from uh, from SoftBank, in it, uh, for, sorry, from not SoftBank, uh, WeWork in its um, absurd absurdness and start concentrating on it because... At the moment, there's no real sign that people are, people are latching on to the ridiculousness of Tesla. I mean, the fact that the share price, after all the mud that's gone into Tesla, is still, what, 245 you know, shows that the penny hasn't dropped yet. And, and, and it but may be it, that WeWork will help the penny drop on some of these ridiculous... Well, if, things, if it does drop, there is, there is a thing that uh, uh, Musk, uh, if the shares go, well, I think it's one thirty. Musk starts getting margin calls on the uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of debt he's taken out with Tesla shares as collateral. If he has to start liquidating shares to pay off his debt, uh, that, I suggest, could see it, it maybe the slow yards are to 130, but then you could get the uh, really very rapid yards. It could implode very rapidly at that point. Yeah, I think there are, there are a number of things that could... Uh cause it to implode. One is obviously a sudden of downing tool. You know, people, I think, again, like Sam Antel said, people just are beginning, I think, to get fed up with Musk. You know, he was, he was, he was fun. Everybody, you know, thought, oh, he's a character. And of course, he's still got his, his absolute diehard fan club. But I just sense the investment community getting things, you know, this guy's just coming a bit of an arsehole. You know, he's got this Solar City thing. He's got the pedo thing which makes him just look so bad it's unbelievable i mean to say oh i didn't actually think he was a uh, um uh, a pedophile pedo is just an expression we use in south africa for someone who's kind of old and creepy and then he hires a guy for fifty thousand dollars to go and prove that the guy's a pedophile i mean it's just so riddled which of course, with... which was just the avoidance of doubt he wasn't which, of course, he wasn't. He was not uh, a paedophile. He was a hero who rescued these poor kids trapped in, in caves in Thailand. Yeah, and, and got a medal for it. And then he goes and doubles down by, by writing a disgusting email to BuzzFeed. And then, then he says, oh, well, I, I, I had this investigator who told me that this was true. I didn't bother to check it, the subtext being. And anyway, I put um, off the record at the top. I mean, you know... It's just unbelievable. So that's going to cost him a lot of money. And again, that's not the point. It's his reputation. It's just people beginning to think, you know, are we going to give this uh, guy money when he comes begging for it next time? More seriously, I think, you know, it, it, you could well get a recall. I mean, these these fires and uh, c uh, and crashes on the full self-driving, you know, and sooner or later, you know, the regulatory body, the NH. STA or whatever it's called, NHTSA they call it, it's just going to say, hang on, you know, A, you cannot sell, you cannot sell software claiming to be uh, uh, autonomous uh, and, and promise that it's going to be fully ready in a year. And we want uh, cars recalled um, for various faults. I mean, if you've got a big recall on the Tesla, it would finish them. So there are various things that that, that could do for them. The Solar City case, they could get into, you know, a, a pretty massive fine for that. Again, they don't seem to have any any leg to stand on on that. 
So, but but again, I think more is it. It's just the it's like the WeWork thing. It's the it's just the general perception. Hang on a minute, you know this this is just too, gone too far. And it started with WeWork, and I think hopefully it will filter down to the likes of Tesla and and Tesla being the main one. But there are plenty of other nonsense. Large cap Nasdaq. Let's go to a, let's go to a nonsense mid cap uh, as we seek to wind up eventually. Um, uh, purple bricks is a nonsense uh, 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 mid cap. Have you been short of it, losing money? No. If you remember, I went uh, long of it. Oh, you're right your your sort of move to the dark side of spivery. You went long purple bricks. Yeah, we mentioned this the last time I was on. I mean, some time ago, simply because I, I, you know, there only are five shareholders in Purple Bricks now, and and I didn't, um, I just couldn't work out what was going on. I mean, there are five shareholders own what seventy six percent of the company. You've got Axel Springer, Woodford, Tosca, uh, Merion, and who else? Someone else. And uh, they own oh, Pinder, the chairman. Between them, they own about 75% of it. It's very difficult to work out what's going to happen. But I was quite interested that you saw the stock pop the other day on on a, a story that came out that um, by an organization called Deal Reporter, uh, who said that sources familiar with the situation, which they always are, say that Axel Springer wants to take out Purple Bricks. Of course, the stock went bang up to 145, and then it's right back down again to lower than when the story came out. It's below 120 now. But I mean, can you? I think I did, it doesn't bother me particularly, and I don't. I'm not suggesting that Woodford or anyone sold into it. There's been no announcement selling into it. But somebody made some money out of that. Um, well, more for not selling into it. Yeah, somebody. But. But, you know, it just, you know, it's got remarkably little attention. Well, can you imagine if a bear got on to Deal Reporter and said, by the way, um, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm a source familiar to you. And let me tell you that Axel Springer, uh, uh, now that they're taken over by KKR, they're fed up with purple bricks and they're just going to dump them in the market at any price. And can you imagine the Ferrari if if that came out and you whacked the stock in half? And um, oh, Roger Lawson would uh, be writing uh, an editorial uh, saying, "Oh, we should be uh, having monstrous new regulation. These people should be sent yeah. to prison. Why didn't they yeah, run it past exactly. the company? Oh, and then Sandy reported it. Send him to prison too. Close down share profits. We need yeah. more regulation." But, I mean, can you imagine the fuss that would be made and so then somebody gets onto you and says, well, you know, why did you tell Deal Reporter that? And you just said, oh, well, you know, I'd heard it. I'd, I'd heard it on the grapevine kind of thing. You know, where did the, where, who are, they say it's two sources familiar, that's sort of, you know about these things, journalistic ease, sources familiar with the situation. I mean, you know, they must know who these guys are. Has anybody kind of got onto these guys and says, well, hang on, where did you get this story from? Who at Axel Springer corroborated it? Um, you know, did you deal in the in the stock? You know, whereas I I you know, I, I can I just know that had that been a what a so-called bear raid or a negative story, you know, the press and the authorities would be absolutely all over it, you know, <clears throat> screaming foul. But again, I don't think there's anything too big about that because um, I just I just don't like what they sold into it. If the Germans wanted to do it, they could bid Woodford a quid for his stock. He would bite their hand off. That would take them to having more than 50%, and they could control the company. Exactly. 
I'm not short of them because I just don't think, I don't, I mean, you know, people do do crazy isn't things. It, isn't yeah, I mean, remember Tosca fund and internet queue. Hughes is not an idiot. He's involved there. So it's just not enough in it. You know, the, again, they can't bid less than a pound for it because they paid a pound recently. So, you know, you short them here at 120. You know, what's your da- what You know, what could you make? 20p out of them? You Maybe if nothing happens, they go. I, I just think there are easier things to do. And again, as a general rule, you know, when you've got a very small, f- you don't particularly want to be shorting shares where six guys own 75% of it. You know, it's, it's just too marginal. To but I agree, in principle, I think... doesn't always get it right. It uh, didn't cover its self no, no. in glory on Cupid, for instance. No, 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 I agree. But, you know, I was hurt on Internet Q. And uh, and uh, it's, that's not the reason. I'm not sure. I just think, you know, I've, I had a pretty good ride on Purple Bricks. I was short from, what, 360 or something like that. And uh, I just think there are better things to do than try and second-guess how the, how the how that one's going to play out? If, I mean, it if could, nothing happens, the company will run out of money, possibly yeah. as early as the first half of next year. Yeah. So, you know, does Axel Springer or now KKR do a face saver and just take it out of the quid? It's possible, you know. It's possible. We shall see. Now, yeah, I, I they're not going to just sit there and let it go bust on them, are they? I don't know, but you know, I just think there's more. There's more. Uh, there's, there's there's better things. I mean, you know, like Sirius and all the rest of it, Versari, and although you can only do that very small, Tesla, you know, I think Purple Bricks is becoming too marginal. That. Okay. Finally, um, uh, after uh, tripping out with the uh, the weed you got from your dealer, uh, <laughs> you had a case of the munchies yesterday. Yes. Um, yeah. Let's end on a sort of. Happy note. It was a beautiful day. Well, today. how do you know, Lucy, what you do? I'm sure you're happy all the time. <laughs> no, it was a lovely day today, and I was walking. Uh, I tweeted on this, actually. I was walking after, after a healthy walk um, up, the, up the high street in my local town, and which was pretty empty, except for... The tangerine <laughs> flowers as you <laughs> fell down the river. So, the only sign of life on the high street well, of, uh, the, the main sign of life was this huge queue snaking out of Greg's with people. It was around about lunchtime. People queuing up to buy their pies to go and eat them in the cathedral close or on benches or in the park. I don't think people actually go in and eat them there, do they? So um, I took a I photograph of you're, it. You're more au fait with this uh, part of popular culture than I am, Lucien. Yeah, I was going to pop in for a steak, a steak bake, but the, uh, the queue was so large, I thought... Instead, I'll show some self-discipline. I'll just photograph it and go home and have my salad. But I went home and, and, and had my salad, and I just looked at Greg's, and I thought, okay, it's a little bit expensive, but what a wonderful company. I mean, I think it's, it sort of makes you proud to be British, Greg's. <laughs> they're, uh, they're, they're unf- they can't fall out of fashion because they were kind of never fashionable in the first place, but they've got this wonderful cult following. They, you know, they they've warned about Brexit, but not in that sort of oh, we'll blame Brexit way. Because in their trading statement, they were saying that things are materially better than expected. Um, So, you know, I don't know what if they source any of their ingredients from abroad, but you know, if they do, a okay, if lorries might have to queue, and they might get just in time business tricky. But I mean, a resourceful company like Greg's, they can just 
you know, have to start a buy British campaign and start making all the stuff in Britain. So I think it's a pretty Brexity proof thing. And, you know, if people are feeling a bit down, you know, they pop into Greg's. If people are feeling happy, they pop into Greg's. And uh, I know that my son was telling me that up, at Le up in Leeds, they, go, they have these sort of Greg's marathons <laughs> where all the students run around. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to visit about 20 Greg's in and around Leeds and, uh, you know, have a steak bake and then carry on running. Bring no, on the asteroids. Oh, actually, she's just... Seriously, on a P of about 28 or something, you know, the, the pro if you look at the, the growth, it's pretty amazing. And I'm not big on buying growth companies, but, but I have to say, I think Greg is a, is a fantastic company. So you are long of Greg's now. I'm long of Greg's, yeah. And the final not thing that made strong. me buy them was that the, the, the CEO, Whiteside, bought a, after, shortly after a trading statement, bought a, bought, you know, not a bad trading statement and a token buy to steady the ship, but a crackingly good trading statement in early August. He then bought a lorry load of stock, and I don't mean a token amount, north of 300,000 quids worth of, of stock at 22 and a half quid. And you can now buy them for 19 and a half quid. Well, that's what I paid this afternoon. So, you know, if, if, if a guy like that, if you can get in, you know, 10%, more than 10% under the CEO who's, who's run the company so well, um, uh, pay a little bit less than him because of all this Brexit fear, I think... Uh, it's, a, it's a, yeah. not a steal at this price, but I can't... If, if anyone knows the downside to Greg's and what, what, if there's anything wrong with them... Yeah, other than I say, used to be, yeah the downside is you used to say that people who do, took drugs got boring. I think people who do Greg's are even more boring. Get back to the drugs, Lucien. Thank you very much. It's been great speaking to you. Right, OK, thanks. Well, well that was wide-ranging, was it not? I hope you also found uh, something of entertainment there, a few jokes, mainly at Lucian's expense, but also at the expense of Neil Ricketts, the preposterous boss of AIM-listed Vasarian. Uh, we talk about uh, those who are swimming with no trunks. Certainly, Vasarian is a company in that category. I also mentioned Neil Woodford a few times in that podcast. Woodford does tend to feature in more or less everything we do these days. I know there are some folks who think that they're getting bored of Woodford, and his problems. Uh, I suggest to you that the real excitement is only just about to begin. There's something I'd like to tell you about, but I can't tell you about yet. Uh, uh, but I think uh, more will come on out, out on that in the next few weeks. Uh, but certainly, uh, developments at Neil Woodford are happening on a daily basis. I had meant to discuss him at length in this podcast, but I think I'll save that for another day. Suffice to say, uh, when uh, the Woodford Empire finally unravels, uh, there will be very real lessons to be learned for all of us uh, uh, in the investment world. Uh, and it won't just be Woodford who will be uh, covered in shame. The regulators, the FCA, I think, will also be covered in a lot of shame. Yet again, they will be shown to have failed investors in a manifest way. It's a common theme which we've covered on share profits over the past five or six years, which is the failure 
time and time again of the regulators to tackle uh, fraud, companies lying, uh, companies swindling people out of money. They have failed time and time again to act, even when they're being given full warnings by ourselves. I suppose, and by others, I suppose the lesson of that is that the FCA and regulators aren't going to be there to protect you. You have to do your own homework before making decisions, detailed homework, uh, if you are to avoid uh, suffering unfortunate losses, where you could avoid facing those unfortunate losses. Uh, one way to do that homework is, of course, to subscribe to Share Profits. Uh, a lot of you are cheapskates. You just enjoy our free podcasts, but you don't sign up for the full service. It only costs $5.99 a month. And for that, you get a daily bearcast from me, seven days a week, uh, 20 minutes of my thoughts uh, of uh, frauds being exposed, placings being exposed, companies being exposed for telling lies. Just this week, we were running that uh, Neil Woodford had dumped his entire holding in Circassia. A two or three day uh, later on that day, the company confirmed it. We're ahead of the game. We forced a statement out of Begbie's trainer uh, about related party transactions between the company and its chairman, Rick Trainer. More on that to follow, I promise you, uh, ahead of the company's AGM uh, in Manchester uh, this week. Uh, we bring you uh, not just the podcast, but nine articles a day. Uh, some of them are bull articles uh, highlighting uh, stocks to buy. Uh, most of them are bear articles exposing stocks which you don't want to buy. And indeed, which if you own them in your portfolio, you should get out of as soon as possible. It only costs $5.99 a month. Uh, it's a complete bargain, less than a glass of wine in a decent boozer. Well, the size of glass of wine that I would like to drink uh, uh, were I not such a clean living individual. So sign up today. Uh, you'll enjoy seven bear casts a week, uh, 70 articles a week on share profits. And you won't have to wait another seven days uh, to hear my dulcet tones uh, with another share profits radio, radio edition. Uh, the next one will be out next week. I shall speak to you hopefully via Bearcast tomorrow. If not, in se- if you're a cheapskate, in seven days' time. Thank you for listening. Man of Harlech, stop your dreaming. Can't you?